Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your host, Kira Peikoff, the editor of Leaps.org, and today we're going to be talking about COVID and misinformation. I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Tim Caulfield, an internationally recognized expert in health law and medical ethics at the University of Alberta. Tim is also one of the founders of Science Up First, a science communication initiative aimed at reducing the impact of COVID misinformation online. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. For having me on. So let's start with some good news. Cases are down. Hospitalizations and deaths from COVID are significantly down in the U.S. and Canada from a month ago. So the vaccines are really working. Uh, Let's take a moment and appreciate these wins before we get into the harder stuff. I totally agree. This is this is fantastic news. And and even here in Alberta, which I don't know if you knew this, it it was a hot spot. Uh, The two things, the numbers of, of cases are coming down, which is amazing. Thank you, science. Thank you, vaccines. But number two, the hesitancy is coming down also. And I think that is really important, too, because it highlights it highlights how good science, good public, meaningful public engagement and good science communication can make a difference. So, yeah, let's let's celebrate this science. This is a moon landing. You know, these vaccines are a moon landing. I don't think that's said enough. Uh, but also, hey, we've had some really, really great public engagement. And I think that we need to celebrate that, too. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you put it that way. It's really powerful when you hear it's like a moon landing, because with that, it was such a clear mission accomplished moment that everybody could see and watch on TV. And there was a clear before, during and after. And it was done. And here it seems a lot more abstract. It's really hard to see what's going on on a big picture level, but to appreciate it in those terms really crystallizes the impact of it. I, I agree with you. And, and and I think also that many of us have gotten very caught up in the details of the vaccines, um, you know, the details of the risk benefit ratios. And, um, and, and I think it's really good idea just to step back, right, and pause and take a breath and, and say, holy cow, we have a number of vaccines that are all amazing. And if we only had one of them, we'd be saying thank you. But we have four, we might have five or six uh, in the near future that are all, all just on the face of it, performing incredibly well. You know, um, uh, we have big clinical trials that were run well, that you know, we had a good degree of transparency about those clinical trials. Yes, there was some science communication missteps, and we can talk about that. But uh, I totally agree. We got to think big picture, and and I, and I think you know even you know six months from now we'll do that more. You know we're going to reflect on on this accomplishment and really celebrate it. So I want to get back to the vaccines in a minute, but before I do, I have to ask you about the latest science communication big time news, which was the CDC mask guidelines that changed a couple days ago. What is your feeling on that? It's science-based, but there was a lot of pushback and there's a lot of confusion about it. So were they right to take that step? It's a, it's a great question. And and I think that the mask story, I mean, there are, there's going to be PhD students out there right now who are doing their thesis on, I'm sure, I'm sure there's probably dozens and dozens of them across the world doing their thesis on, on mask communication because it's it has not been ideal from the beginning uh, till 
right now, right? It, there has been, I think, some missteps uh, along along the way. So do I think that that policy was scientifically accurate? I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm going to say, uh, you know, uh, Yes, I think I think that glo- you know that was probably the the right step. Was the communication done in an ideal manner? Probably not. I think there could have been more nuance. There could have been more coordination. I think is what everyone is really saying to make it clear about when you still should be wearing masks, why, how important it is to, to wear masks in those situations if we want to make sure we contain this. Um, but the, on the other side, let's talk about the other side of that. I, I think that hope is really important too, right? And, and to signal to people that they're, we're going to get out of this. If you get vaccinated, these are the incentives. You're doing this for your community. Um, and so I think you can understand why the CDC and, and Biden also, you know, decided to, to really, to really push this messaging less than ideal, but, I think, signaling in the right direction. How's that for a wimpy answer? (laughs) I get it. Lots of nuance there. And of course, along with the message, there's the very real fact right now that we've just entered this new period of our vaccination campaign, at least here in the U.S., where we have a glut of vaccines. And this is a big change from just a few weeks ago. Um, Millions and millions of Americans, about 28 million, have said they probably or definitely are not getting vaccinated and 16 million more are unsure. So while we do have decreasing rates of hesitancy overall from last fall and, and earlier this winter, we still have a sizable proportion of people who are not comfortable. So what do you think is the reason for that and what can we do to reach them? It is it is remarkable. And I think so we had all this good news. We've been talking good news up until now. And I think this this vaccination hurdle and I like to call it a hurdle because I think we can get over it. The vaccination hesitancy hurdle um, is going to be a real problem. And we're starting to see this already. We're starting to bump up against it. As you know, in some jurisdictions in in the United States, we're starting to bump up uh, uh, against it in other uh, countries. Um, and uh, it's likely going to be the driver as to why we're not going to reach herd immunity if we don't reach herd Im- immunity. So this is a significant, significant problem. The other thing where I think we're starting to st- see more and more is the degree to which uh, ideology is playing a role here. You've seen the stats. Uh, they're well known uh, in the United States. Those who are more conservative and no judgment on people's ideology. <laughs> I'm just talking about what the stats say. The people who are more conservative uh, more likely to be hesitant. Uh, and, and, you know, that's true in Canada, too. It's true in, in Canada also. Uh, and it's true. We've seen that that pattern play out in other jurisdictions as well. So uh, I think we're at a very interesting time. And what we need to do is start tailoring our messages uh, for those communities. Um, so interesting study came out very recently talking about how uh, for some it's very worthwhile for some, for example, religious communities to talk about how this is you know, uh, love thy neighbor. That's the message you want to use when you're trying to get people to to vaccinate for that community. But the bottom line is we got to have to start tailoring messages for those particular communities. And not that long ago in the U.S., you had those GOP politicians putting out uh, messaging about vaccines. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to get communities speaking to communities in order to get uh, get these vaccines uh, out. And look, even if we get you know one or two or three percent more people vaccinated, that's huge at this stage, right? That's where we're starting to get, especially in the United States. And of course, the big elephant in the room here is social media, right? So people are exposed to all kinds of stuff online from their friends, their peer groups, 
whatever they see, whatever they happen to come across. Um, one study I came across found that in states where there were more discussions on Twitter with low credibility sources, those states tended to have more people who were vaccine hesitant. And it's just a correlation. We don't know exactly um, the causes or if that really truly impacted people's decision making. But can you talk a little bit about what you've learned in your own research about the impact of social media on vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, that, that I've seen that study, too. And, and as you know, the, there have been many. And, and in fact, uh, I think it's safe to say now, because we've come at this question from enough methodological directions, I think it's safe to say now that this is largely not entirely, but largely a social media phenomenon. And when I, by that, I mean the spreading of misinformation. You know, there have been interesting studies. There was a study from McGill uh, that found that those who get their, their news from social media, from Twitter, from Facebook, more likely to be misinformed, more likely to believe misinformation. There have been other studies that have found, again, correlation causation. Got to be careful not to overinterpret, but a very tight correlation between um, belief in misinformation and hesitancy uh, between inability to answer correct questions about COVID and hesitancy. Uh, there was the study by Heidi Larson's uh, group out of the UK. You know, she does a lot of great work on vaccine, vaccine confidence. And she found that uh, she tried to put a number on it. Um, about 6.2 to 6.4 percent of the current hesitancy, right? So that's, you know, the current misinformation and the current hesitancy caused by misinformation. So 6% may not sound like a lot. That's huge, right? That's a huge hunk of the population if you're trying to get to herd immunity. So the good news, I think, is that I still believe that most of those individuals that are hesitant aren't the hardcore deniers. I, I think those hardcore deniers, that number has stayed relatively static. And maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, although I do try to look carefully at the data. I, I still I like to believe that a lot of that those other individuals who say they're hesitant, they're still part of the movable middle. I still th think they can be they can be um, brought on side. I don't want to say convinced because I think it's really important that they're you know making this in, in, informed choice. Are there any trends you've observed within social media in terms of like worst offenders or age groups that are most vulnerable, certain platforms or or any of that that? You find, you know, perhaps TikTok is has a different level of misinformation than LinkedIn, for example. I'm just curious if you have any insight on that. Uh, can I just say yes to all the above? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there, there are interesting trends in all of those domains. You know, one of the interesting trends is, uh, and again, the data is is fuzzy, but I think that this this is what I'm going to say is true. Uh, in, in, youth are more likely to be uh, hesitant. And, you know, I don't think that, which is, I think a little bit not, you know, what people would immediately grasp. You know, they think it's the older uh, demo that's going to be more hesitant. But, but in fact, the younger demographic is more, is more hesitant. And, so, you know, in my own country, that, that trend is pretty strong. And, and I don't think it's that they're not as smart or they don't have the same critical thinking skills. I think a lot of it has to do with exposure. They're just so much more exposed to social media and different platforms. So going back to what you said, different platforms than maybe what other people are, are, are exposed to. So I think that that's really interesting. And the other element of that demographic is this degree of complacency, right? So they're not going to be hardcore deniers. They're just going to be, you know, perhaps a little bit of doubt. So you were talking about dangerous trends. I think that that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the, these, these bits of misinformation that are just credible enough that they create this doubt. And that's all you need to do. If you're sitting on the fence and you're doing this sort of risk benefit calculus, especially if you're a young, healthy, um, 
adult or a teenager, they're going to say, you know what, I'm not going to. So the myth about infertility, for example, the myth about changing your DNA, for example, the myth about shedding, for example, all those things may may be just enough to create hesitancy if you already have some, some complacency. So I think that's a really problematic trend. And that's playing out on social media, for sure, you know, for sure. Um, so yeah, there are some really interesting trends and, and I think we need to be aware of them if we're going to try to fight, to fight misinformation for those demographics. So speaking of teens and the vaccine, now we're very lucky that here in the U.S. they're authorized for ages 12 to 15 and lots of teens are already getting vaccinated. But what about those teens who are doubting or on the fence? How does consent work with them? So that's really interesting. Now, in my own country, I can speak quite definitively about this. <laughs> so in Canada, in Canada, if you are a competent um, teenager, so if you are 14, 15, 16 year old, years old and, and you have uh, a, a, you're quite mature, you're like your consent is likely sufficient and necessary. So you don't you don't even need consent from from parents. Right. So it's the kids who are going to consent. Uh, in the U.S., there is some difference from jurisdiction from state to state, but that is still a theme, a theme that exists in the United States. And I think that that is important to recognize. But I, I do think we need to be careful. Um, you know, we don't want to suggest that there should be a conflict out of the gate. Of course, you want this to be a family a family decision. But um, I think, you know, the idea that, that kids can play a very, or teenagers, even quite young teenagers, can play a very important role in, in consenting for vaccines uh, is important. You know, you know, one of the things that's interesting is a lot of the discussion around consent started pre-pandemic around the idea that there was going to be these pro-vaccine kids going up against their anti-vax parents. But given the data I just re- referred to, it might even be the opposite now, right? where you have some teens that are young adults that feel like they're more hesitant than their parents. Wouldn't that be an unusual situation? So, um, yeah, just because teens have the capability of participating in this decision making process doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have more people vaccinated. We still need to make sure that those teens concerns and questions are, are, are answered. And, and the other thing I think is really important to recognize with, with teens and, and young adults is that all the different pressures they're under. First of all, it's been a really tough year and a half for, for the teens and young adults out there. Really has. I mean, I've got, <laughs> I've got four. Uh, secondly, uh, they're getting messaging from all over the place about, about vaccines. They're hearing from uh, they're getting all this misinformation. They may be more susceptible to misinformation. Some interesting research on that. Um, they're from their peers. They're hearing from, and we know research tells us for you know that cohort peers extremely extremely important. And we've already talked about social media. They're getting a huge amount of social media uh, exposure to all of these issues, from people dancing on TikTok to uh, you know Instagram influencers talking about this stuff. So I think we need to recognize that, that there's a lot of noise out there. It's a chaotic information environment for, for teens and young adults right now and, and really try to point them in the direction of credible information. You know, Let them go on that journey uh, to get the right information that they need. So is that something you recommend parents really try to focus on or schools? I mean, whose responsibility is it, does that fall into the most? Well, uh, 
Yeah, and again, I'm going to use that all the above <laughs> response. I think for sure you want to have these conversations in families. It's so important, right? Uh, so you want to give families the tools and the resources that they need in order to have these conversations and get access to these credible sources. Uh, I do think schools play a role here. Um, not everyone's going to agree with that, but I absolutely think that that schools, especially around critical thinking, I think everyone can agree with that, right? Teaching critical thinking, uh, media lit- literacy, that's so important. But I think they can also play an important role in vaccination education. But the other one that you didn't mention is our healthcare providers. You know, you really want to have you know, uh, pediatricians, um, family physicians huge role. They play a huge role in educating people, in nurses, public health nurses, et cetera, et cetera. They can really play a, a crucial role in, in mediating family discussions around vaccines. Makes sense. Now, I want to get into the roots of misinformation a little bit and why we're so vulnerable to it across the board. I mean, everybody is, right? If we hear something that's a really compelling personal story of someone that was harmed by something, we tend to really put emphasis on that, even if it's extremely rare. So, for example, with the, for example, the blood clot situation with the J&J shot, exceedingly rare. But a lot of people lost confidence in that vaccine because of those stories. So I wanted to know if you could shed some light on that. Why do we put so much weight on emotional information and anecdotes versus cold, hard data? It's so true, isn't it? And there's actually some really fascinating research to back this up. And we've done some research on this ourselves, the the role of testimonials, of anecdotes, of narratives uh, in the spreading of misinformation. Um, There was an interesting study from 2016, for example, that found that, you know, a powerful anecdote will overwhelm our scientific thinking. And as you just said, that's exactly what is happening here. You know, you'll have uh, an anecdote, a story, a headline that highlights uh, this adverse event versus literally a million points of data on the other side that has been, you know, interpreted by experts around the world and the anecdote wins, right? And we've seen this play out again and again and again. But, you know, uh, really, we can even go back to the autism myth, right, where you had Jenny McCarthy, you know, sitting, talking with Larry King about, I bet you can, I bet you can even conjure that image in your head that, that um, uh, interview, that famous interview that she did. So it's, it's Jenny McCarthy and a group of experts from the CDC. And we remember Jenny McCarthy because she is a celebrity, but also she's telling a story about herself, right? About, uh, as a parent, about her child getting autism. And that resonates. And so there's really uh, interesting re- research talking about how we might be hardwired to resonate and have stories resonate. Layer on top of that, our negativity bias, our tendency to to uh, respond more to negative headlines and to positive headlines. Layer on top of that, the availability bias. You know, if we can remember it, if we can conjure it up, we're more likely to believe it. All of these cognitive biases make make these kinds of stories more powerful and give them an outmoded role in our lives and our decision making. So then the real question is, how can we become more rational evaluators of the information that we consume rather than just giving our cognitive biases the default status of letting it rule our our perception? I I do think that that just being aware of those cognitive biases is helpful. It's helpful. It uh, it, it doesn't fix the problem. (laughs) We all we all are wired this way. But that is that is a start. 
uh, being becoming aware of these biases. Uh, the other thing is, on the other side of the equation, and we haven't talked about this, is we should start using narratives and storytelling uh, and other creative strategies, art, humor, in order to get across get across the good stuff. And um, you know, I'm not I'm not saying we use anecdote to fight anecdote. I'm saying that we use anecdote to engage the public, to get across the good science. And, and you know something? I, I think that has happened more and more over the past year. I really do. Um, where you're seeing more and more uh, science communicators using creative strategies in, in order to get, you know, people are dancing on TikTok. You know, get these scientists, you know, uh, telling jokes about uh about COVID and, you know, on and on. That really works. And and I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing a decrease. Maybe I'm being optimistic, I'm being naive, but I think that's one of the reasons why we are seeing a decrease in vaccination hesitancy. We got to go further. We got more work to do. Uh, but I, I think it really is this, this embrace of creative communication strategies in the context of COVID. So it sounds like there's two approaches to deal with this hesitancy and misinformation. There's the offensive strategy, the positive storytelling, the ways to engage, art, humor, etc. But then there's the defensive strategy, which is debunking the misinformation head on. But of course, as as journalists and communicators, we don't really want to amplify that information either. I mean, I'm not going to spend this whole conversation with you talking about why our DNA isn't going to change from the virus, right? So how do we walk that line? It's a great question. And and uh, there's, as you probably know, an ongoing conversation within the scientific uh, science communication uh, community about this. I am of the view that the body of evidence tells us that the backfire effect, which is basically what you're describing in the amplification concern, is overstated. Um, I, I think that most of the evidence post-2010, when we first started hearing about the backfire effect, either finds no backfire effect or it's rare, or it's very context-specific. Um, I've gone so far to say it's a myth. I don't think that's true. I should probably walk that back. I think that, that the literature is just far more complex than often portrayed. And I don't think the backfire effect in total should scare us away from debunking. In fact, there was a, a recent study by Ecker's group, a uh, well-known uh, team that does research in this in this area that found that it's safe to repeat misinformation when you're debunking it. But uh, there is this default, uh, it's almost become a truism that the backfire effect exists and, and therefore debunking doesn't work. But I, I think, you know, I, I, I view debunking in a more global sense. I don't think it is just countering misinformation. I think I, I like to, to put it uh, all under the same umbrella of of fighting the spread of misinformation. So um, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a hypocrite here and, and <laughs> I actually err on the side of avoiding direct confrontation with, with people who are spreading misinformation because I think there is some research to su suggest that if you do, you're not going to change their minds, right? Those hardcore deniers. And you might, in fact, just embolden, embolden them to be even, you know, to continue to amplify nonsense. What you want to do is use their statements as an opportunity to talk to the general public in a constructive way, right? And speak to their values and, and let them know about what the science 
actually says. So uh, I think if you do debunking right, uh, you can make a difference, right? So it, it is this offense-defense uh, approach. As you probably know, there's really interesting research about, uh, and, and one study came out, um, I'm going to say just a couple months ago, by David Rand and Gordon Pennycook and some other scholars talking about how debunking is more effective than pre-bunking. Now, lots of discussion about defining debunking and pre-bunking, but, but they found that, you know, it does, I, I take it always as a constructive thing that, that, Debunking can play an important role. In other words, getting on social media, correcting misinformation when it's when it's there in a way that's positive. Okay, fair enough. So we've been talking so far really about the main role of social media and misinformation, but I also want to talk about the regular media. So sometimes the regular media can be one of the worst spreaders of misinformation. Um, one example I can think of off the top of my head is a story from early in the pandemic saying... COVID is just the flu. Everybody relax. Everybody's freaking out and don't worry about it. And obviously, you know, that and many other of the early pronouncements were very wrong and not not just early on, but throughout. So I'm just wondering, are there examples of this in the regular media that you've had to fight back against or that you've encountered over the last year? Uh, for sure. So for, uh, I'll again, start positive. <laughs> I, I think that as you know, in my own research, I've studied how the popular press has represented health and science issues for a very long time, for decades, really. And they often screw up. They often do a terrible job. No offense to the popular <laughs> press. They're getting better. Um, but they've been pretty good in the context of COVID early days. Our own, on our own research grant that we got uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had planned to spend a lot more time studying the the conventional media. But we found early days they were pretty good. Not perfect, but pretty good. Having said that, I think you're exactly right. There are some glaring examples of of situations where they 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 did poorly, uh, and one that we're studying right now. And this hasn't been um, peer reviewed yet. This literature the, uh, we've have finished the study. We have a manuscript get almost close to submission, but we looked at the false balance problem associated with topics like you just described but also around natural herd immunity, right? This idea, you know, the Barrington Declaration, um, this idea that, you know, we don't need a lockdown, we should just let it burn through, basically. Um, and we have, we did find a lot of false balance. So in other words, it was portrayed as if it was like that, on the one hand, we have the natural herd immunity approach to fighting the pandemic. And the other hand, we have the lockdown approach to fighting it. And it was, it was, this false balance was created. And we know from other research that that kind of false balance can do real harm on public discourse, on perceptions, and even on public health behavior. So that, for example, there's interesting research around how, how the autism myth was falsely balanced early days, you know, the Wakefield autism myth associated with vaccines. And that false balance did have an impact on public perception. So that's, I think, a really powerful example of, of how the conventional media can get it wrong. And, and, and that error can have an impact on both perception and behavior. So, you know, hopefully our data will be out relatively soon, but I think it's a lesson that we can learn, you know, going forward. And I think that people that talk to the media, so when someone's talking to the media about something that has the potential to be falsely balanced, Really make sure the reporter understands that they, they shouldn't do that, that, you know, this is a fringe view. This is a view that is not adopted by the majority of experts in this field. And if you don't do that, you might leave 
the perception that there is this equal waiting and that can do harm. Yeah, and it's an issue as a journalist that I've definitely been well aware of for a long time, but I don't know if a lot of consumers are aware of it. And really the way that a reporter frames a story, exactly as you're saying, can subtly influence the way that it's perceived. Even if you know, you're a very well-educated person and you're evaluating the evidence, if you're presented as, well, it's either this or this, and they're equally valid, and they're, these are the two options, it's hard to undo that. Um, in the way that you you yourself consider the information. So I think a lot of the onus is on the journalists and the editors and the way that they present the information. I, I, I agree with you. You know, the framing can have such a, a powerful impact. And what you find with these kind of false balance, and I think the, the, the one that we're studying is a really good example of it, they, it, it becomes more polarized, right? It becomes full lockdown, like this incredible full lockdown versus... Uh, this other less stringent approach, right? Which of course is a complete false dichotomy. Every jurisdiction was striving with a balance between being open and having restrictions and the economy and having restrictions. Every single jurisdiction was balanced, trying to balance stuff. It wasn't this, this false dichotomy, but you create this false dichotomy. It does have an impact on, on perception. Now, th- I think when it's really important to be clear we're not saying that the media can't mention these other perspectives. It's how they're framed, right? And how they're presented to the public. And so everyone always advocates for a weight of evidence approach, right? So you always want to highlight where the weight of evidence resides on the issue. Uh, don't leave it as if there are these two equally highly polarized perspectives that are equally valid. So that brings me to my next question, which uh, maybe you can tell. I think I'm getting into trickier and trickier territory around misinformation. But I want to talk about what happens when misinformation comes from the very sources that should be our most legitimate ones. So, for example, the CDC itself spreading bad information long after scientists knew that COVID was airborne. The CDC still maintained that six feet of distance indoors would be protective. How does this impact the way that people perceive public health officials and guidance? And the World Health Organization. Exactly. You know, uh, and, and so it, it, it is, and as you know, the World Health Organization on that topic, one could argue, still not presenting in an, an ideal, in an ideal manner. Um, I, I'm going to give you two, two versions of my answer, okay? <laughs> one where I'm trying to be a little bit more forgiving. So the one where I'm being, my version of it where I'm trying to be more forgiving is this idea that this science is complicated. The science is evolving. These are entities that are trying to weigh, they're trying to weigh a whole bunch of different scientific perspectives. And we are watching that process unfold in a manner that uh, we don't normally do, right? You know, we're sort of hyper scrutinizing the scientific decision making around this topic in real time. And, you know, we want an answer quicker, more quickly, the one that's definitive. And, and so when we get these conflicting responses and responses that don't seem nimble enough to respond to the evidence, that's why, right? You know, there are, people, there are all these different disciplines, these people, you can picture the room. It's a committee decision, right? Uh, and that's sort of my more generous interpretation. And, and so in that regard, what you're doing is you're calling for, for patience and, and allowing, you know, these decision-making bodies to... To come forward. My more cynical view is that uh, these are bureaucracies. 
that have momentum, that like every bureaucracy, every decision-making organization um, can become wedded to a perspective and loathe to change. And I hope that we've learned uh, from the process how important it is to be nimble and to follow the science in a way uh, that is um, uh, both transparent and allows the public to continue to trust the decision-making. The other thing I think is going on here, though, is is a science communication issue, right? You know, I think I, I think that that um, entities like the CDC and the World Health Organization, one of the reasons, and I'm, I'm speculating here, I don't have evidence to back this up, but I think it's a fair speculation, they become wedded to their own view in part because that's what they've represented to the public. And I think a sort of a more transparent and honest approach is this is the reason we came to this conclusion. This is the best we can do with the evidence that we have right now in the future, this recommendation may change, and we recognize other bodies have come to a different conclusion. Stay tuned. This is the best we can do right now. Um, the mask, the evolution of the mask recommendation is the cla- now going to be the classic example of that. You know, don't be dogmatic at the beginning because you just look wrong as opposed to being an organization that is supposed to be nimble, that's supposed to evolve with the science. So this is in part, I think, a science communication strategy. I think, and again, I'm speculating, but I think it's reasonable speculation <laughs> given the literature. They become wedded to their own views. Now, the the third version of this story is even more cynical, the idea that there are some players within these organizations that have their own reasons for adopting these perspectives. Uh, but I think we can be slightly more generous than that and sort of land on that middle one. And so the good news is we can learn and we can make these organizations better going forward. But we have to also acknowledge the real harms that these myths really cause. I mean, lots of people have thought for many months that they were safe inside as long as they were six feet apart. And it's just not true. Uh, and I also and you t- uh, alluded to this in, in your previous question, harm to trust, too, right? You know, one of the things that I've said over and over and over again, I've maybe even said it already to you, is I did, I think, you know, credible information, you wanted people to go to credible sources. And and I I define a credible source as bodies that are independent and aggregating the science in a responsible manner. And you would hope the CDC, the World Health Organization, the Public Health Agency of Canada, um, are, you know, meet that definition, you know, if, if, if not them, then who, right? Uh, and so I, I think you're right. I, I think that it does, it does real harm uh, in, in, the, in, in an immediate sense and also going forward to the trust that people put in these entities, which could also cause life, li- lives. So that really begs the question, if we can't totally trust these organizations, which have fumbled the ball in some big ways, who can we trust? Who are these most credible sources? Who should our listeners go to to hear the unvarnished truth in the sciences? Okay, so I want to. I, I I still think in the aggregate, um, these entities, the World Health Organization, the CDC, um, they are still trying to aggregate the science in a responsible manner, right? Yes, they they should be um, held accountable and we need to con- constantly scrutinize what they're doing. You know, that's, I think, part of the scientific process, to be honest with you. But they still, in the aggregate, these are the kinds of voices we want to point people to. They're far better than, for example, the YouTube clip that your crazy uncle <laughs> sent you. 
Um, so I still think we need to put it in perspective. We also have to remember that, um, you know, what I said earlier about science evolving, that's not insignificant, right? You know, people will say the World Health Organization, the CDC got masks wrong, you know, 14 months ago. There were scientifically plausible reasons for the, their positions. These were people, a lot of people say, well, they took that position because there weren't enough masks. It was all about mask shortages. That's not true. That was one plank for their argument, and they were tra- both of them, and same with Public Health Agency of Canada, they were transparent about that. But there were plausible reasons why they, their initial position on masks was, you know, less supportive, I'll put it that way. Uh, and as the evidence accumulated, most of it was observational, laboratory, so we're talking about a body of evidence um, that pointed in a particular direction, they all changed their position. And that's exactly what you want to have happen when it's a science-informed public health uh, authority. So beyond the public health authorities that are entrusted with making this guidance, who do you personally turn to for really good, solid information? Science up first. <laughs> Hashtag science up first. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think that what you need to do, to, you need to go to uh, those academics that are trying, that you trust, that are trying to aggregate this information in a responsible manner. There's wonderful, one of the good news uh, stories of the entire pandemic is the degree to which fa- these fantastic voices have gotten on social media, you know, uh, public health experts, um, epidemiologists, uh, new science communicators, you know, young and old using all these different platforms. There's these wonderful voices out there. So I think you can go to that. And we actually have a list of trusted, you know, credible sources on Science Up First. And we do have the obvious ones, but we do draw on ones that maybe you haven't heard of. Uh, Ottawa Public Health. They've got this great, fun kind of feed on COVID. Uh, The City of London in the UK, same thing, you know, kind of fun, engaging, shareable content. So, you know, we try to to mix it up and also in French for all the French people out there. Um, uh, So we do try to gather together some uh, sources. So just go to Science Up first uh, and go to our credible sources uh, pull down and you'll have some great stuff. That's great. And also on leaps.org, we've compiled a list of the best experts on COVID to follow on Twitter and grouped them by epidemiology and virology and different disciplines. And they're specific academics who we've been following this whole year and find that their research and their work is is really legit. So uh, if anybody's interested, that's on our site as well. You know, I, I will say this about about all the misinformation that spreads. I know we're getting close to a, the end of our time together. I, one one of the things I always recommend to people, and, and this we started this way, is think big picture. You know, despite all the noise about the details of of the pandemic, we know what works, and we know what does doesn't work. And so, the big picture stuff: physical distancing, masks, vaccines being responsible when you have symptoms. These are the things that are really going to make a difference. And the other good news thing, the other big picture thing is we're almost out of it, people. <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. And so, you know, thanks to everyone's incredible efforts, we're going to get through this. Good, good. Well, I'm, I'm very hopeful that you're right and that we are past, well past the worst of it. But before I totally let you off the hook, I want to ask you one other question that's been on my mind about misinformation. That's a tough one. And it's this idea that the term misinformation itself can be weaponized in policy debates. When people have slam ideas that they don't like, calling the misinformation to discredit them. So, for example, the latest thing is this accidental lab leak hypothesis, right? Last year, 
it was discussed and immediately called misinformation. And it, then it became synonymous with like right wing conspiracies. But then just last week, this group of very prominent scientists wrote a prominent editorial saying this is a hypothesis that we need to investigate and it's it's not off the table. So, you know, as people who read the news and aren't experts, what should we do when we see other ideas slammed as misinformation? You know, I, I think it's a, it's a great question. And um, I, I've seen it play out in other contexts, too. You know, I, I've seen it used against myself, you know, um, um, and we saw we saw it with fake news. Right? The people took ownership of that term and used it in different ways and as a way of discrediting voices. Um, so one of the things I think it needs to happen, and we saw this around the Barrington Declaration, for example, is I think that we need to have credible voices speak out clearly and quickly uh, to counter it, to say that it goes back to that weight of evidence approach. Uh, so we can get away from the polarized uh, discourse and really talk about what is the weight of evidence, the body of evidence, say on a particular on a particular topic. I think that is one of the best responses to exactly what what you've just said, and, and we've seen that we've seen that play out over the year, um, and and I do think it's worked to some degree. You know, those hardcore those hardcore deniers that hear a message that resonates with their values. Uh, it resonates with their community, it resonates with their echo chamber, it's going to be very hard to change their minds, right? It, we are talking about the movable middle. And I think for that movable middle, that strategy I just referred to can make a difference, right? Here's what the, bo- the body of evidence is. This is actually where the uh, scientific disagreements reside. You know, it's often a small part, part of the broader story. This is where the reasonable academic uh, differences reside. Um, and please, public, follow the scientific story. Follow the, Come on a, along with us on this scientific journey, uh, and we'll hopefully one day get closer to the truth. So just to sum up for our listeners, we've had a very wide-ranging discussion, and if people are looking for a few key takeaways on how to get good, credible information and how to protect themselves against falling for bad information on social media and elsewhere— what are the main three things that they should do or think about? Um, <laughs> I, should, I should have prepped for that one. Uh, <laughs> um, so number one, number one, uh, I would say, you know, recognize that debunking does work. You know, we can make a difference by countering misinformation where it resides. Uh, number two, arm yourself with the critical thinking tools that are necessary in order to fight misinformation. Uh, so, yes, that means Think about what evidence is being used. Uh, think about the source. Uh, think about whether this is just a testimonial, an anecdote, or a, a poorly done study. So I think you can do number one and number two. It sounds complicated. It's not. And number three, let's recognize that this is largely a social media phenomenon. Uh, and so uh, take a breath. Take a beat. Whenever you're looking at something on social media, there's really interesting research that tells us if we can just remind ourselves to reflect uh, to pause, we're less likely to, sh- to share misinformation, less likely to believe misinformation. Social media, a really frantic space. Let's just slow down a little bit uh, in order to make sure that we're only sharing the quality information. Great. Well, lots of good stuff to think about and a lot of reasons to be hopeful and optimistic for the coming months ahead. Thank you so much for this discussion, Tim, and thanks to everyone for listening. 
If you like the show, follow Making Sense of Science to hear new episodes. And we're always open for feedback. We'd love to hear from you on our channels, Making Sense of Science on Instagram or our website, leaps.org. Until next time, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.